This week on the Science of Politics, the American public is getting more politically sophisticated. For the Niskanen Center, I'm Matt Grossman. Americans have long been considered ideologically innocent by political scientists, failing to match elite issue positions and ideological perspectives when making their political decisions. But new research suggests that is changing fast. Canonical measures of the American public now show more ideological consistency and advanced conceptualization, and that's all contributing to our polarization. Today, I talked to Martin Wattenberg of the University of California, Irvine, about his American Political Science Association conference paper, The Changing Nature of Mass Belief Systems. Coding open-ended responses on the American National Election Studies, he finds that Americans now cite a lot more public policy issues in describing their views, rather than making general statements about each party's success or failure. I also talked to Austin Kozlowski of the University of Chicago about his American Sociological Association conference paper with James Murphy, Issue Alignment and Partisanship in the American Public. He finds that citizens are not only quickly matching their issue positions to their party, but now increasingly lining up their issue positions on the liberal or conservative side of the spectrum. They both return to measures introduced by Philip Converse to assess American political sophistication. Wattenberg saw it from the beginning. One of the most important pieces of political science research ever done on political behavior found that very few people thought in terms of ideology and policy terms when they evaluated the candidates and the parties in national elections. And that really came out of the 1956 election study done at the University of Michigan. And these questions are very general. They just ask people, what do you like and dislike about the parties and the candidates? And they continued to be asked every four years since uh, 1956. And more recently, they are... The exact responses have been made available through the Internet on Excel files. And so I've been reading them and comparing them to what findings were in previous years and my own reading when I was at the University of Michigan of these comments. And things have really changed. People are a lot more ideological and a lot more policy-oriented than they used to be. And Koslowski also returns to the basics to show big change. The first studies of alignment were done by Philip Converse in the 1960s. And what Converse found were very weak correlations between opinions across issues in the general public. And he also found that there was very little understanding in the general public of what the differences were between the left and the right. His conclusion from all of this was that the public was generally innocent of ideology in his terms. And what's kind of intriguing about it is that he thought this was a regrettable circumstance. He, his interpretation was that without ideology, the public would be unable to really make sense of the political field, and that lacking ideology was an indication of having an incoherent or inconsistent set of opinions. And what we find here is still working within this same basic framework of alignment or constraint, basically two words for the same thing. But in this spike of issue alignment, it seems that people are not so innocent of ideology as they once were. And an interesting point is that we now see this as being problematic in its own sense. So perhaps people know what the difference is between left and right, but they're congealing so strongly on the left and the right that we're losing the more creative different configurations of opinions that might diverge from this single spectrum. 
Wattenberg was following up on reading through the voter responses, where the increase in sophistication was clear. But I was doing a couple projects at the University of Michigan that involved actually having to go back to these interviews. I didn't read all of them, but I read a lot of 52, 56, 60, 64, 68. And then the 1980 surveys were around in uh, file drawers, and I pulled those out late at night. I wasn't supposed to, but uh, and I, I just liked looking at them and seeing what ordinary people said. And it's a whole different world. I mean, people are just a lot more sophisticated now than they used to be. They used to talk in real generalities didn't see the terms liberal and conservative very often, didn't see a lot of policy, you saw a lot of, well, he's the candidate of my party, which you don't see that much anymore. If somebody does say that, they then go on to elaborate about it. And you don't see the prejudice that you used to. I mean, I read a lot of 1964, and there was a lot of prejudice. Uh, that came out right after the Civil Rights Act. You'd be shocked at some of the things that people said. And uh, in general, I'd say, you know, people, and I found this to this day, people are pretty outspoken. They say what they think, but the things that they think now are different. Mostly what I found for, say, 1980 was things are bad. They can't get any worse time to change, or this guy could make things worse. And it was what Congress called nature of the times. You know, the economy's good, international relations are good, bad. You really don't see very much of that anymore. I struggle to find any of those. Kozlowski was trying to merge sociology's interests in social transformation with political science. It seems to me that the cultural divisions that have characterized the U.S. for a long time are increasingly overlaid by these kinds of political divisions. So as a sociologist, I'm particularly interested in what political polarization reveals about the, so the social and cultural landscape of contemporary America, more so than what it reveals about the particular strategic kinds of actions that are taking place in Washington. So in the end, I don't think we can ignore either one of these aspects of polarization, the political elite side or the underlying broad social transformation side. But I think that this is exactly where a dialogue between political science and sociology can be very productive in drawing together the deep understanding of political institutions with a lot of thinking about culture and thinking about demography and these larger social indications in the general public. They both say the academic view needs updating. Wattenberg says we've missed the rise of policy wonks in the American public. From my reading of the literature, it's something that people are still hanging on to. But a lot of what they're using, uh, data that, uh, having data that are no more recent than uh, the 2000 election. And then I also looked at, there's been a lot of changes since 2000, and then I re-examined the 2000 data and found that they eliminated or didn't bother to notice this whole new category of people who don't mention ideology, but they talk about a lot of policies, at least three policies and usually more. And those people I call policy walks. And there's a lot of them now. That's about 10% uh, of the electorate, a little higher percentage of voters. And overall, almost half of the people who actually vote 
now are either what I call concept ideologues, they think about in terms of ideology, or they think in terms of multiple uh, policies that fit together. And that's a very different image than it's been seen in the literature until recently, which basically said, oh, Congress is right at most, it was 15, 20% of the voters, maybe 25 would fit in. So I'm, I'm pretty much doubling that. Kozlowski was updating a past study, finding it was mainly partisan sorting, but not issue sorting, up to 2004. Now it's both, and they're going up fast. My study is building on an article that was published about 10 years ago, so I think it would help to start with a little bit of background. Now, this previous study that was done by Delia Baldessari and Andrew Galman traced a couple different forms of political polarization in the general public between the 1970s and 2004 using nationally representative survey data. Now, the first thing they looked at was called partisan alignment, which is the correlation between how an individual politically identifies themselves, Democrat or Republican, liberal or conservative, the correlation between that identity and the individual's stances on specific issues like gay marriage or social welfare programs. And what they found is that between the 70s and the early 2000s, this correlation shot up. So there, basically, you would learn a lot more about a person when they tell you that they're a Democrat or a Republican in the 2000s than you would learn in the 70s. There's a closer correspondence between identities and issues. The second thing they measured is called issue alignment, which is the correlation between multiple issue opinions. And what they found there is that it was really quite low and it stayed very low between the 70s and the 2000s. So if you told me that you are pro-life, that wouldn't necessarily help me predict your stance on other issues like gun control or Medicare for all. So the way that they interpreted their findings was that what happened was a process of partisan sorting where we took a population that was largely not very ideological. They weren't all hardline left or hardline right. They were leaning a little bit left, leaning a little bit right. And these people sorted themselves out better. The people leaning left increasingly took on the labels Democrat and liberal people leaning right took on the labels conservative, Republican, without anybody really becoming more ideological. Now, my collaborator Jim Murphy and I looked at this article and thought, maybe a lot has changed in the last 10 or so years since this this article was published. Fortunately, there's been more data released since this time. Their time series only went up to 2004. We now have data for 2008, 2012, and 2016. So we basically look at these same trends in correlations over time and see what happens. What we find is that not only does the partisan alignment, the correlation between identity and opinion, shoot up even faster than before, but there's also a spike in the issue alignment, the correlation between multiple issues. So what this means is that people are, in a sense, becoming more ideologically consistent. Having one left-leaning opinion implies having many having one right opinion implies having many. And this is a new thing. There's still a middle, but those on each side have clearer ideas. One distinction that's useful to make when talking about polarization is between alignment, which is what we're studying here, and bimodality, which is basically the dissolution of the center of the political spectrum. Recent studies have shown that there are still a lot of people who give the neither agree nor disagree response, who 
identify as moderates or independents, there's still a lot of people who are right smack dab in the middle. The question is, how organized are the people who are not in the middle, who are giving opinions, who are identifying as liberal or, or conservative? And what we find is that these people who are diverging from the center are more congealing around a single axis of opposition. And issue opinion correlations are rising fast. Since 2004, what we find is that the correlation between how people identify politically and their stances, what we call partisan alignment, has skyrocketed even faster than it was growing in the past. So if somebody says that they're a Democrat, it tells you a whole lot about what their opinions are on individual issues. But even more interestingly, since 2004, there has been this big boost in issue alignment, the correlation between opinions across issues. Now, this has historically been very low and has grown only very slowly. And it was last assessed up to 2004, at which point it was still low. When we carry the time series forward from 2004 to 2016, we find that this correlation between issue opinions shoots up. And this, in a sense, is an indication of ideological consistency. If somebody has one liberal opinion, they probably have several liberal opinions. If somebody has one conservative opinion, they probably have several conservative opinions. Wannberg says open-ended responses also show the information environment has changed, enabling real sophistication. What Congress was really looking for wasn't so much ideology, but a well-developed, sophisticated belief system. And that liberal conservatives is a shortcut to talking about policy, but one can also talk about policies directly. And what I, I must say that I rarely ever saw that in the microfilm interviews that I read that people would just be talking about all sorts of different specific policies. But now you see it all the time. I think the information environment has changed and also the political environment has changed that we just get exposed to so many more policies now. Uh, and then part of that is also social issues. Uh, gun control and abortions come up all the time. Gay marriage comes up a lot. Uh, various civil rights issues come up a lot. And uh, people, the policy wants to mention at least three different policies. And on average, they make about uh, over six policy comments, which is a, it's a lot of policy. And so I isolated that. I In the beginning, I figured that those people had well-developed belief systems, but I coded them separately to, to then look at their characteristics. And I found that they are very politically knowledgeable, very politically interested. He agrees that it's not just sorting, but real changes in conceptualization. So there's a lot of debate in political science for quite a while now whether the greater relationship between party and ideology is just people sorting themselves into natural categories and the decline of Southern Democrats, uh, Southern Conservative Democrats, and Northern Liberal Republicans or whether it's really people who know what they were doing and saying, well, I'm a conservative, therefore I'm a Republican, I'm a liberal, therefore I'm a Democrat, or reverse causality. I'm not sure that it really matters. And 
what I what I tried to look at was you look at by conceptualization, you see that pretty much all the increase, um, or certainly most of the increase in liberal Democrats and conservative Republicans are from the top groups of sophistication, the concept ideologues or the policy wonks. And that means that this is a real change. On the other hand, part of the increasing relationship is this the decline of Macomb County, the conservative Democrats in Michigan. And that's an easy thing, I would argue, to avoid. And it also just might be generational over time. And so what I find is the mismatches are going down at all levels of conceptualization. So I would say I don't take a stand saying it's all sorting or it's all sophistication. So what's a combination? It's the people who are getting it right. It is sophistication. And the people who are no longer getting it wrong, well, that's just throughout the electorate at all levels. Increasing education explains part of the increase. Congress all along expected that as education would go up, that is higher levels of sophistication, the ideologues, and I would say that he took policy wonks with ideologues, that those would go up as well. And that's, you know, another thing that I've definitely noticed compared to what I read many years ago, is you're seeing a lot more signs of higher education. I mean, some of these things that I read, I couldn't believe the level of detail. And, uh, and then I looked these people up and said, oh, yeah, well, this person has a PhD. You know, this person is a lawyer and so forth. Well, that makes sense. And you're seeing a lot of that. And so I just re-estimated the data from 1980 and said, okay, in 1980, college-educated people had this percentage of ideologues and wonks. And then what we know is that over the following 36 years, the percentage with college education has gone up. And so I re-estimated the 1980 data with increasing levels of education every four years. And what I found was that through 2000, the increase in higher levels of sophistication was exactly what you would have predicted based on education levels. And then since then, the increase has been even more. So anything, any changes that I found up through 2000 were pretty much pretty predictable based on education. And since then, it's a change. There's got to be some other factors, changes in the information environment, changes in the way candidates campaign. Kozlowski also finds that increasing constraint extends beyond the highly educated. It does make a great deal of sense that we should be seeing an increase in overall ideology and issue alignment over the decades because alignment is strongly correlated with education and education is going up overall. But an intriguing thing that we find is that there is this corresponding concurrent boost among those who are less educated, those who do not have a college education, are similarly witnessing this boost in correlation between their issue attitudes and between their partisanship and their attitudes. So while there is certainly some kind of overall gain that is 
that can be attributed to education expansion in the U.S. Something seems to also be happening that's pulling in the folks who are not as educated and who are less politically engaged. And I think that that is going to push us to look into how do people understand the issues who don't pay much attention to the news and who don't have a strong education in politics. Because it appears that there's some way that even the politically disengaged are making sense of politics. They're making sense of it in a way that pulls them into the same ideological patterns that we're seeing among the more educated and more politically engaged. And Wattenberg finds consistency up over time as well, but he attributes it to rising conceptualization. Compared to the 1980s, there was more consistency at all levels, but where consistency is really evident is among my top groups. My idea, my concept, ideologues, and policy wants. And so, you know, it wouldn't surprise me. I would expect that consistency would be up across the board because people are more sophisticated. I mean, it's exactly what Congress would have expected too. But Kozlowski says it's somehow expanding beyond those paying most attention to politics. One of the fascinating things about what we found is that the increasing correlations between political identity and attitudes and correlations between multiple issue attitudes is not contained among the most elite populations. It's not contained among the most politically interested, the most educated, the most wealthy. It's actually diffuse among the population. And this is something that's really unanticipated by most prior research. In general, going all the way back to the work of Converse, people who are deeply engaged in politics have been ideological to some extent. That's not entirely surprising. But the people who are not engaged in politics, it, there's never really been any sign of them aligning on the left or the right. It's just not a game that they're playing. Yet, only post-2004, and as I mentioned, especially starting 2012, we see this boost that's across the board. And the less elite groups are still climbing a little bit on these moral issues. We really see a plateau among the, the more elite, more educated, more affluent in their moral alignments. Those have totally petered out, whereas the less elite groups are still climbing in the moral domain and in some of these areas even matching the, the more highly interested highly educated elite groups in their levels of alignment. We ask different questions over time, but there are ways to account for that. The way that we get around this problem of changing questions is by looking at how alignment shifts within questions over time. So instead of just taking one aggregate score and seeing the average correlation as it goes over time, we look within questions and see, does this question increase from one year to the next? And therefore, even if questions aren't asked the entire time series, we can look from period to period and on average look at the slopes of these various questions. So that in part gets around the problem of simply different questions being answered and whether these new questions are just the polarizing questions and the previous questions were non-polarizing questions. They found issue consistency shot up most in 2012. But when you look more fine-grained at year by year, it looks like the biggest spike actually happened in 2012, which is intriguing. 
in 2008, if anything, there was diminishing of alignments. It's hard to know exactly what was going on in this year. There are a lot of things going on. But looking at the candidates for the presidential election, Obama and McCain, both of these were figures who were, in a sense, not traditional Democrat or Republican, and were able to draw support across the aisle in various ways. And it did seem that they perhaps diminished the importance of partisanship, diminished to be um, the association between multiple liberal opinions, multiple, multiple conservative opinions. Yet, only four years later in 2012, we see this big boost. So it's hard to know exactly what happened at that period. One thing that we can say is it wasn't Donald Trump. This predates Trump. He wasn't the he isn't the smoking gun in this story. And it may have something to do with new kinds of media consumption, increasing online media consumption, increasing options for cable news, for instance. There's a lot of research shows that people are able to sort themselves into the kind of news that reaffirms what they already believe. And this exacerbates um, bias in one direction or another. Moral issues explained the earlier alignment, but now it's economics and civil rights. I think the interesting thing about the issue variability is looking at the changes between the earlier uh, time period and the more contemporary time period. Now, there was a lot of talk for a long time about culture wars and politics, and these conversations particularly emphasize the importance of these moral issues like abortion and gay marriage in drawing new people into the fold, into talking about politics and becoming the critical axis on which political divisions were structured. And indeed, this is something that was important in both partisan and issue alignments from the 70s to 2004. But afterwards, we find that the economic issues and civil rights issues are the, the key things, the key axes along which opposition is becoming structured in more recent years. So this causes us to update our, our theses about the culture wars. This doesn't necessarily mean that it's not a kind of culture war, but the cultural differences that are being leveraged here in political debates aren't just about these kind of moral slash religious questions and have to do with how do we structure our economy? What are the government's obligations to racial minorities? He says that follows changes in the political debate. The directionality of this association is that the elites who are driving the mass or the mass who are driving the elites is hard to establish. But I think that we see this uh, finding borne out in contemporary political debates that there's a rising importance of economic and civil rights issues over the moral slash religious ones. Wattenberg also says changes in the debate are reflected in the interviews. You know, having read, you know, as early as 1952 to as recently as 2016, messages are certainly there. Uh, my advisor, Warren Miller, said to me when I was starting this work many years ago, I said, what, you know, the open-ended responses often reflect is the debate debates of the last four years. And so that if you read the 1952 interviews, you're really picking up a lot of issues and debates that came from the Truman administration, because Truman was still president when the election was going on. And 
you definitely see that. You definitely see people talking about current events. In response, the people who criticize the questions and say, well, you know, people are just parroting what they've actually heard on the news. But it's a really good historical insight into what people are talking about now is really different. Than, and when they're thinking about politics, they're really thinking about something very different than what they were doing in the 1950s, 60s, 70s, 80s, so forth. So Donald Trump did change the nature of how Republicans think about politics because he provided a, a different stimulus, somebody who wasn't that ideological. And so most Republican voters in 2012 were very ideological or policy-oriented. But some people were very different from the Cruz people. And they just didn't talk as much as Republicans usually do about policy or idea, and especially ideology. And on the other side, the Democrats, you know, they've been moving more ideological and more policy oriented. And what we saw in 2016 was sort of a legitimate legitimation of talking in those terms that Democrats have avoided the term liberal for years, even if they were liberal. And Bernie Sanders said progressivism, democratic socialism, these are good things. And for the first time, I'm really seeing that in the interviews. And then you also see a lot more policy orientation, too. So uh, the parties, in that sense, have become closer together. In the long run, I expect the Republicans to go back more towards normal after Trump is gone, and that they should be more ideological than the Democrats. But I think the Democrats are going to continue more towards uh, Sanders' way. He found that newer Trump-related 2016 issues got integrated easily into others. What I found in 2016 was the policy wants, especially, are very consistent in terms of the issue dimensions. And they were able to relate what I call the Trump issues. You take these new issues that are out there that really do cut across parties in a lot of ways. You know, it's like Republicans have always been free trade, but, you know, Trump takes a different stand on it. So that's you know, one Trump issue. But, and then the immigration Republicans have often been pro-immigration. Of course, Trump has not been. So the, um, the policy wants are very consistent in terms of they're, they're very conservative on what I call the Trump issues and also very conservative um, on social issues and economic issues. And they fit, they're fitting everything together. Concept ideologues almost as well. And those two groups, since they now represent about 45% of voters, as opposed to, say, 25% or not, maybe not even quite that much in other years, that makes a big difference, and that should increase issue consistency overall. Kozlowski also found that Trump didn't change too much. The increasing alignment continued. 2016 was actually not a grand departure from 2012 and what we observed. 2012 is when the biggest boost took place, and this persists into 2016. But 2016 was not the the year where the most action was taking place. Now, at once you might expect Donald Trump to exacerbate alignments, but also to cut against them at the same time. Ways that 
Trump could heighten alignments in 2016 moving forward to 2020 is by pulling people into politics who have previously been less engaged. A lot of people who were not voters in previous elections, who were not considered likely voters, came out to vote for Donald Trump in 2016. So it seems clear at this point that he's been mobilizing a group of people who have not been engaged in politics and perhaps wouldn't have identified with one party or another, but are now becoming politicized through the kinds of rhetorics and the kinds of issue attention that Donald Trump gives. Overall, Wattenberg found the 2016 responses very negative and extreme. Is there anything in particular about Donald Trump that would make you want to vote for him? And then a lot of people just (laughs) responded with absolutely and incredible negative feelings that I'd never seen before, before you even asked them the second question, which is, is there anything in particular that about Donald Trump that would make you vote against him? And I have in my paper some examples of some extreme things people said, and I started putting them in red in the Excel file, and after a while, it's like, I've seen this over and over again. I was just, unless somebody said something that was different, I didn't even bother. And I sent this to a colleague who read the gold, all the Goldwater responses. Said, did you ever see anything like this? And he said, no, no, never. And then they asked people about Hillary Clinton, same thing, you know, well, reasons for voting for, reasons for voting against. And again, the, the responses were often very extreme. I heard Hillary called all sorts of things that I'd never seen before in previous years. Same thing with Trump. And then people were asked, uh, what do they like and dislike about the Republican Party? What do they like and dislike about the Democratic Party? And by the time you've read that, in, on average, it takes about 15 minutes for respondents to get asked those eight questions and answer them. So it's a nice little short, structured interview. But he also saw an explanation for the 2016 primaries, where Trump voters really were distinct. And there was a real divide in conceptualization between supporters of Clinton and Sanders. The Trump voters, they're less motivated by traditional Republican goals. And they are really looking to shake up the system. And you you really see that in some of these interviews. And I must say, I saw some of these people in 2012 and 2008. I read the 2016 before I went back to reading all the 2012, 2008 in detail. And I often wrote in the margin in 2008, 2012, boy, these people, this person really will like Trump, you know, when he appears, you know, looking back on their old interviews. So they were there, but there wasn't a stimulus for them. And on the Democratic side, you know, the Hillary people really were quite different than the Bernie Sanders people. And the Hillary Clinton people thought more in traditional group terms and they're traditional Democrats. Whereas the Sanders people, you know, they, like the Trump people, they really want a big change. And their change is ideological and policy-oriented. But it all can't just be following elites. Kozlowski says they found increasing constraint even among independents. The partisan trends do, in a way, mesh well with these subgroup trends, where we find that the non-elite populations, the less engaged populations, are showing similar increases in their 
political alignments. And when we do disaggregate by party affiliation, looking at issue alignment, we find increases in economic civil rights and moral issues among independents, maybe most strikingly. And this is surprising because who are the independents taking their cues from if they're not allied with either the right or the left? And this once again draws to the fore of the questions about media consumption, what kinds of sources, um, what kinds of information sources independents are drawing from, and also brings to the fore the question of how political issues are being framed and discussed. If there is perhaps now a way that issues are being talked about that makes them more comprehensible, intelligible, and compelling to people who previously have been disengaged with politics and still would not identify themselves as either Democrats or Republicans. Wattenberg says there's still a divide between those who do and don't understand politics the way that elites do, but the sophisticated portion have doubled in size, a trend he finds promising. I mean, you can't overstate it. I think Bon Kinder at the University of Michigan has done a lot of a lot of research on this, and he's, you know, he's gone back to Converse and said, well, Converse is basically right that, you know, either people have that, you know, really good sophisticated sense or they don't. What I think that Kinder and his co-author Calmo missed in their recent book was just how much the percentage who have it has gone up. I think they, they definitely missed that. And so we're now in the case where it's, it's uh, at least when you look at people who actually voted, pretty much a 50-50 wall. And, and that about half of the electorate are really quite sophisticated and half really aren't and they're not that consistent. So the answer isn't all that simple, but we're moving in the right direction. And it's, it's a good sign for democracy. You know, when people ask me, uh, do you feel better or worse about, you know, the American public and American democracy after having read this? And well, especially in light of my previous experience and in light of the, you know, the state of the research, you know, I definitely came up more optimistic. People are more thoughtful, I think, than political scientists have been giving them credit for recently. And I expect this to continue in the right direction uh, in the near future. Elite arguments are now penetrating to the wider public. Part of what Congress was trying to say was that that a lot of the debates between politicians just get lost on the American public who aren't sophisticated enough to understand policy and ideology. And that has really changed. I think it really has penetrated. And people have gotten used to these arguments and they're going to expect it in the future. And I think Phil Congress would say that this is a good thing. That's something we'll keep on following. But in this day when there's so much criticism of American democracy, I came up more optimistic having actually read what ordinary people are saying. But there is a downside. We're mean and polarized. Downsides is, I mean, you think stuff about Goldwater or McGovern was extreme. Uh, the the sort of stuff calling the other side fascist, calling the other side criminal, saying you know they're evil. I saw that over and 
over again. The name calling really gotten out of hand. Yeah, I don't know whether it's just social media or whether it's also the candidates to blame for this, but there, there is certainly a lack of respect for the other side. And I got to say that I see that with a lot of very sophisticated people. And that in some sense, I would say the more you know, the more you can be come out as really extreme and saying why you just don't like the other side. Kozlowski says the evidence should move people away from the partisan sorting explanation toward the possibility of issue-driven change. It is hard to tease out whether one is driving the other. It's certainly very possible that some of this partisan alignment that we're seeing now is not actually partisan sorting, but is actually resulting from the issue alignment. When you only see partisan alignment increasing, while issue alignment is low, you can pretty conclusively say that this is a consequence of sorting. People aren't becoming more ideological. They're not changing their attitudes on issues. They're just picking the right party to identify with. But if you have people who are already liberal, or already conservative, becoming more ideological, taking on a more platform liberal or platform conservative set of views, then you're going to see an increase at once in partisan alignment and issue alignment through that same set of attitudinal change. So it seems that that's really playing a key role right now, and that is something that hasn't previously been observed. Importantly, this isn't something that can be reduced to just partisan sorting alone. His next step is to ask whether cultural division might be helping to bring the uninitiated into our political division. I would like to continue looking into the ways that political divisions are mapping onto existing cultural divisions in the U.S. I think understanding how and why the less politically engaged are being pulled onto these axes of ideology requires us to look at what these groups of people care about, what they hope for from politics, and how the various framings of issues resonate with them, pull them in in a way that they haven't been able to do before. Moving forward, we can take for granted this new political landscape that we're dealing with, with new levels of polarization and alignment, but we still need to understand how did we get here? What were the forces that brought us to this new point of political division? There's a lot more to learn. The Science of Politics is available bi-weekly from the Niskanen Center. I'm your host, Matt Grossman. Thanks to Martin Wattenberg and Austin Kozlowski for joining me. Please check out The Changing Nature of Mass Belief Systems and Issue Alignment and Partisanship in the American Public, and then listen in next time.